I remember everyone laughing about, about that uh, for 15 minutes, uh, doing jokes uh, with uh, uh, that specific word or words. And I was, well, obviously not willing to ask because everyone uh, was <laughs> laughing on that. Hey, <laughs> I need some help on that because, uh, uh, well, I really don't know what you're what you saying. Falcha. Welcome to Connected Communication, a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture and the brain through the lens of self-awareness. I'm your host, Christine. I'm standing in the office, about 50 teachers around me, director of studies, assistant director of studies and another manager. And I asked the finance director, for some guidance on paper GSM. If you don't know what I mean when I say paper GSM, I mean the thickness of paper that you order for marketing materials. I hadn't ordered particular paper for marketing materials in this way before. I was new to the company and I needed a bit of guidance. So I went into the office, walked up to my finance director, stood beside him so as to have a quiet closed conversation and said, can you give me a bit of guidance on this paper that I need to order? He steps back far enough so that he could raise his voice loud enough so that the whole room could hear him, looks at me and says, it's just paper, Christine. You have a master's. I'm sure you could handle something as simple as paper. And everybody heard it. And how did I feel? Raging, of course, first of all, but incredibly embarrassed. I wanted the ground to swallow me. I had only recently, like I said, started working in this place. I was working in a management role. And there's this guy standing a good foot above me because he was quite tall booming to the rest of the office that I was too thick to be able to figure out the thickness of paper. Now I had a choice in that moment to hide and allow the ground to swallow me up, to get angry and upset and embarrass myself by giving out to him in front of everybody, or to do what I did, to take a deep breath look at him with daggers in my eyes like I wanted to kill him and smile and say, yes, I can handle paper, but I've never ordered paper like this before, so I thought you might be able to give me some guidance, given that you're more experienced. <laughs> yes, of course I can. Not everybody's able to do that. Not everybody has the ability to be able to do it in English as easily as I have the ability to be able to do it in English because I was raised speaking English. Yet every day, like you heard at the beginning of the episode, people are sitting in meetings, sitting in presentations, at networking events, sitting at lunches with 10 or 15 or 12 or 5 or 7 or 9, it doesn't matter, people around them 
laughing, joking and giggling, using complex language, acronyms, abbreviations and all sorts of jargon, local colloquial terms that some people who aren't from the area don't understand even if they're English speakers, never mind somebody who doesn't speak English as a first language. Now, I'm not someone who advocates for not using this language like a lot of my colleagues do. I actually believe that we should be still using it, that it's okay to use it. However, if we are using it, it needs to be used with awareness. If you've listened to my podcast before or you've seen any of my content online, you'll have heard me say a word, say a phrase or a term and then just say a different meaning for it. I do it even in my short videos. It's not difficult when you're aware of what you're saying. The problem is that most English speakers aren't aware. They're not conscious, as my guest today talks about. They just talk. They talk and in many cases believe themselves to be better communicators because they speak English as a first language. They talk and believe that they sound more intelligent because they use big words and create this sense or feeling in others that they need to use big words around them as well. And all that results in is an attempt at complexity. So people trying to make themselves sound more intelligent, what they believe is more intelligent, using complex language that creates a stutter in the brain, that creates a lack of clarity creates a sense of otherness, a sense of incapability, a sense of a lack of intelligence, an inability that doesn't exist in their first language or second language or third or whatever other languages they speak fluently and proficiently. So what do we need to do? If you're somebody who leads teams, who leads organisations, and you're waking up, you're becoming more aware and recognising and realising that probably the majority of your staff are not first language English speakers. If you run a global firm, that's most likely the case. And that they may be potentially, possibly struggling in some way in meetings, in presentations, because most of your board or most of your executive teams or most of your senior managers are still white, wearing white shirts, and coming from backgrounds that speak English as a first language. Then it's time for you to start acting. Now, if you're not somebody who is in this position and you're listening to this, you can also help them to recognize and realize that it is time to start acting. My guest and I today talk about guidelines around clarification. So before I go off on a rant, uh, I used rant actually with a client the other day. So if you're listening to this client going off on a rant, before I go off on a rant, speak at length in a frustrated or maybe impassioned way. I'm going to go back into talking about some of the areas that came up with my client and I today and aspects of them that are important for the workplace, for the organisation, but also for the individual, whether English is your first language or not. I mentioned just a moment ago guidelines around clarification. How can people clarify? What phrases could be used? Do you have a communications 
notebook, for example? Do you have big signs and posters around your walls? A lot of organisations have wonderful, fabulous quotes all over the walls that motivate their teams. That's great. But is it useful to your meetings? Wouldn't it be more useful if you had two or three phrases up on a wall that said, this is how you can clarify. This is how you can interrupt. When is it okay to clarify and interrupt? In what meetings, with what people? Who can you interrupt? Technically, you'd think that you should be able to interrupt anybody if you need to clarify and understand something better. But we know from cross-culture and different levels in organisations that different people have different egos and status needs and positions. And so it's not always appropriate to interrupt immediately. So guidelines created by the organisation around who to interrupt, when to interrupt and how to interrupt can be beneficial to create a clear communication culture. If you can't interrupt somebody in the middle of a meeting because the safety hasn't been created in that meeting, then it is the responsibility of the person chairing the meeting or speaking to create that safety. Rather than be interrupted, check that things are being understood. Now this goes back to the how to interrupt. We've got to think about interruptive clarification from a brain perspective, and yes, whether you like it or not, from an emotional perspective. In that moment that I stood in the teacher's room, with 50-odd people around me getting patronised by a six-foot-two-inch man, my brain responded in the way that brains respond every single day if you are paying attention to them around you. I felt the subjectivity immediately. I was a woman. I felt weakened. I felt patronised. I felt embarrassed. And, and I wanted to, the ground to swallow me up and I wanted to fight. To be honest, I'm a fighter. I'm not a, a, a flyer. I, I don't run away from things. I tend to jump right in and, and face them head on. But that's not necessarily always the way to do it. So I had to check my, my subjectivity. I had to think about how appropriate it was in that moment to interrupt with anger. And what was the most appropriate response for me to give after I had acknowledged the feelings, labelled the feelings and the emotions in my brain. So when we're clarifying and when we're interrupting to clarify or when we're checking that somebody has understood, there's a difference between saying, did you understand that in front of a room of 10 people? Of course, you're going to say, yeah, of course, yeah, I understood. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you might use a more uh, confident tone of voice. Yeah, sure, I did. It's likely that they may not have understood. Oh, I shouldn't say it's likely that they may not have understood. But when asked a question like, did you understand? It's probable that the person is going to say yes as opposed to say no. And we learn that. From teaching, you learn that if you're at all aware as a communicator, when you put somebody on the spot with a closed question, did you understand something, the brain automatically keeps them safe. Yes, yes, I did. I don't want to be socially embarrassed. I don't want to be disengaged. So we flipped that into what can I clarify? And pause. Pause to a point where it might feel awkward if you're Irish, if you're American, if you're from the UK and you're one of those people who cannot sit in a silence. Sit in silence for a moment. 
look around the room. Look at the eyes, look at the eyebrows, look at the shoulders, look at the faces, look at the people on camera. Which direction are their eyes going in? Are they looking at you or are they disengaged? What can I clarify? Pause. Would it help if I used an example? Yeah, that would be great. If you don't give the time for the brain to respond and for somebody to be brave enough to say, well, actually, could you repeat that last part you said and add an example on at the end? Then you don't actually give the time for clarification. There's no point in saying, what can I clarify? Three, two, one. Oh, nothing. It's all grand. I'm going to move on. There were times when I would be in a classroom, 15 different nationalities, 15 different individuals and personalities. And I knew there were a couple of people in the room that didn't understand. You know, I, I know, I know by the movement of the body, I know by the face, I know by different behaviorisms. And behaviorisms? Yeah, let's go with it. Mannerisms. <laughs> and I would say to a person, what else can I add to help this be clearer? Or I might ask a different type of question to check understanding. We have checking a concept and checking information in English language teaching, but it's the same as anything else. You concept checking question, did you understand the concept? Information checking question, did you understand the information? Instruction. And I'd pause. And generally, after that little point of pause where it starts to become awkward, somebody else in the room who had understood it would start to answer the question that I had asked. And this was long before my neuroscience training, any of my neuro language coaching or brain based conversation training. And I would look at the person and say, mm, thank you. But just give their brain a chance. Just give their brain a chance. Because some people's brains move faster than others. Some people's confidence is higher than others. Some people need a little bit more time to open their mouths and voice what they need to say, especially if they're from particular parts of the world. So, creating those guidelines around clarification in the organisation. Thinking about the brain and how the brain responds. Watching for subjectivity and objectivity, particularly I don't want to say particularly for women on this because, to be honest with you, I work equally with men and women. And, you know, men are given a hard rap. This idea that women are more subjective, women are more emotional. Women just show their emotions a little bit more. I can guarantee you something. The men that you have in your rooms feel equally as embarrassed when you do the same thing to them as you do to women. They just not, might not let you see it because society doesn't let them. And we talked today a little bit as well about the way you interact in a language. You'll hear my guest talk about an experience that he had with a headhunter in an interview. It was an incredibly powerful comment that he'd heard about the difference between how he communicates in English and how he communicates in Spanish and his power when he communicates in Spanish. And he, of course, put it down to the fact that Spanish was his first language. But that wasn't the case. What the headhunter noticed was that actually it wasn't just about the language that he used. It was about the manner in which he communicated using the language. 
And I saw this with one of my clients over the past year. I can't say nationality or, or identify or anything because I don't want the person to be recognized and identified in, in the work team. But their first language is in English, but they're highly experienced in what they do. Many, many years experience and in their first language, many years experience at a higher level, managing um, six times the people that they manage now or that they even have any form of, of connection with now. So naturally, when they came into English and into this role, their status was affected. That sense and that feeling and that awareness that they were capable of doing all of this 10 times over. But it wasn't as easy in English. It took a while to bring the person round to being comfortable with the coaching process, because with some clients, when they come sponsored by an organization, they may not recognize and understand the need for coaching. And so that's my job to to help them to to understand and find a place where they feel comfortable with the process and what will work for them. It's not for me to sit down and say, well, you have to work on this, this, this and this. That's not how it goes. It takes time. They, they relax in and then suddenly someday, usually after three or four sessions, oh, OK, I see what I can do now and, and where that might help. And then over time, what happens is that manner of interaction in the language shift. There's a difference. I say this often between language proficiency and communication competency. Just because you're proficient in the language doesn't mean you are a competent communicator. English speakers, particularly, I am talking to you. But what he recognized was that in his own language, he had all of the competency, the skills and tricks and techniques that I work with my clients on, because that's generally what we do once confidence and, and clarity and diction has been shifted. We're all already there in his first language. When they're already there, it's much, much easier to transfer that into English. And as that realization hit, yeah, well, this is what I do in my first language. Okay. Well, I can just do the same thing in English. Yeah, you can. And what would the impact of that be? Well, I did it before in this way, in this language. So it's likely that this would happen, right? And how do you feel about trying it out? Oh, I, I think I will. And the shoulders start to shift. And how this person started showing up in meetings started to shift. And how this person started to be perceived started to shift in the organisation. All because the recognition and realisation of how they interact in the language was all that needed to change. After, as I say, a bit of work on diction, a bit of work on clarity. And so, those of you who are listening to this, who find yourselves in positions where you're already advanced in English, you may even be at proficiency levels, and you're still feeling that lack of confidence, something makes your shoulders drop. Something makes you feel excluded. If you're not sure what it is, come and talk to me. Let's figure it out together. Find it out if, if I'm the right person for you to work with. But if you don't want to do that yet or you're not ready to take that step yet, 
when you hold back, take a second and ask yourself what you'd do in your first language. Now, if you come from a very direct language culture and you haven't learned to be in an indirect language culture or a softer language culture, then do come and talk to me because how you do it in a very direct culture versus an indirect culture is not going to work, to be totally honest with you. But check in. How would I do that? How did that work before? What nationality did I do it with? What can I use from those techniques now that may potentially work on these people? All right, and how willing am I to try it? The way we interact in language is also very much connected with modulation of the voice. People often don't realise that there is quite a simple fix to their challenges. And this, again, is English speaker or not. The world believes or has been trained and conditioned to believe that the English speaker is the best speaker in the world. Well, when you do, there you go, look, sure, there's me after making a boo-boo now, a mistake. Well, not a mistake, but I, I started getting passionate again and my mouth moved too fast for the words to be able to come out. I hear my mother again, Christine, never speak more quickly than you can articulate clearly. English speaker or not, the world has been trained to believe that the English speaker is the better speaker, elocutor and communicator. But clarity of diction isn't equal and even around the world. An accent and clarity have nothing to do with each other. Well, that's not entirely true, of course. Accent and clarity have something to do with each other. But to speak clearly, to be heard, to be understood and to be followed and believed and trusted in English or any other language, you don't have to get rid of your accent. It's just about shaping and modulating the voice in the way that is clear, confident and connected with the person you are speaking to or with, or even the group of people. A good example of this is a recent networking event that I was at. And despite a request to slow down and speak more clearly, because there was a variety of proficiencies in the room in terms of English speakers, the English speakers who had a higher degree of proficiency and the English speakers whose first language was English still spoke too quickly and used too much colloquialism. It's like it's ingrained in their mannerisms, in their speech, in their throats, I don't know, to not be able to stand for a second and look around a room and recognise that half the people listening can't follow. So, awareness of the brain, of the conventions in the communication engagement, of how we act in certain languages and certain cultures and what we can bring in from them that help us to be able to communicate more closely, more consciously and in a more connected way. We're not just communicating to a level. We're, in communi we're communicating to a culture. And when we recognise that we're communicating to a culture, as my guest gives a fantastic example or more than one example of today, we start to adapt and shift how we communicate. 
we start to become aware of our biases. We recognize that we're affording a lower degree of capacity maybe to a speaker because we think their language skills aren't good enough. And then actually when we see behind the language skills to the human being and we discover their technical skills, we discover their empathy, their compassion and a a number of other different skills that they have, we realise, oh, I might have placed a few too many labels on them just because they didn't communicate in the way that I expected them to. Communicating to a culture means understanding the norms of that culture, the directness, how trust is built, how feedback is given. There's there's a very interesting uh, shift when you look at American culture between the directness of feedback and, no, it's not that, yeah, the directness of feedback and the directness of, of speech in the culture. And actually, there are two very interesting differences. The other one is in not feedback, it's in, I'm, I'm racking my brain now to remember this because I don't have this in my note, but it's popping into my, my memory right now as I speak. So I want to add it in. Oh, in leadership and deciding. So when we look at Aaron Meyer's culture map, what we discover is that leadership in the States is considerably egalitarian. Leaders want to see themselves as, as equal and as sharing and connecting with their teams, with their people and leading in a style that allows people to communicate and connect across the organisation. All these open office doors and you can contact me and you can talk to me if you want. And then when it comes to deciding, it's very different. It's much more hierarchical. It's much more top down. But that's very nice that you told me that. And I I hear you as a leader. I'm listening and I hear you. But I'm going to make the decision. probably not going to be the same decision as you would have made. Now, if you're American and listening to me, don't be getting mad at me. I'm not generalizing all of you as being the same. Well, I am, but I know that you're not all the same. (laughs) So don't get too annoyed here. This is generalized information based on the culture map. But it's fascinating because when you, you dig deep and you talk to somebody and they say, oh, yeah, I've got a great connection with my team. We work really well together. They they connect with me as a leader and I know what's going on for them. But then when you go to actually make a decision, they're not really taken into account in the decision. If it doesn't affect the bottom line in the way that the bottom line wants to be affected by the executive team in the organization, there's a big shift, a big separation there. And we need to be aware of this when we're communicating to a culture. And this applies is equally to an American culture going into EMEA, going into Asia. As you'll hear my guest talk about today, he gives a fantastic example of how an American coming in to run a Northern European team had pretty disastrous impact on the results because they wanted to run it in the American way. It's being aware of presentation styles. If you listen to my interview with Heather, you'll have heard Heather talk about uh, the the different presentation styles coming out of America and how even for her now, it's a bit too loud. I sound like I'm America bashing right now. I'm not. The reason I'm talking about America so much is because so many large firms, global firms, are American-led. And a lot of the world has to learn how to adapt to American leadership and work with American leadership 
But if you're very honest with yourselves, if you are American listening to me, you guys aren't necessarily the best at learning to adapt to the rest of the world. And that's equally as important. Again, I'm not saying it's everybody, but many. We have to be aware of cultural black holes, as Richard Lewis calls them in the culture active model. He, uh, it's, he uses an example of an eye to demonstrate this. It's a very potent image. And now when I think of cultural black holes, I see the black round part of the eye looking at me, hiding those deep, deep beliefs and conditioned behaviours that are very, very hard, if not impossible, to shift. For instance, like how in Ireland, if you say goodbye only once and hang up the telephone, you're going to be considered very rude. If you've ever spoken to somebody Irish on the phone, you'll know we say bye, 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 bye. And you kind of hear less and less of the voice as the phone moves away from the hand. Well, not anymore because, or not the phone moves away from the hand, the phone moves away from the face. Or it used to when you'd put the phone down, as opposed to now it being a mobile where you just move it away from your face. Bye, 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 bye. And then we hang up because we don't want to be the last person to say goodbye. You don't want to be people talking about you. So that's it. It's cultural black hole. It's a behavior that many people don't even realize they they do or they have. But it's there and it's unconscious. Goodbye. Guess what was wrong with them? Why'd they hang up the phone? that fast on me. Did I do something wrong? My guest also gives some tips for default English speakers. I'm going to say default English speaking leaders and English speakers just to test out default. If you were listening to my interview with Adriana last week, you'll have heard Adriana and I talk about a new term for native speaker. And one of the terms that I came up with was default. So I'm testing it out here. If you hear me use it, I'd love to let to to hear what you think. What would you call a native English speaker or a non-native English speaker instead of a native English speaker or a non-native English speaker? I'm going for default. For me, default. What's your, are you a default English speaker? Is Which means, I'm going off now on a little uh, tangent of thought, but Go with me on it, I hope. Or you'll go with me on it, I hope. A default English speaker. So if you say to someone, oh, are you a default English speaker? It means that you naturally default to English. No, I'm a Polish speaker. Are you a default English speaker? No, I'm a French speaker. Oh. I think it works. I think it's an equal way to talk about English speakers and uh, well, what, what the world now calls native English speakers and non-native English speakers. Mm, you heard it here first, folks. Now, can I change the minds of the many? Get the world to start calling people default English speakers instead of non-native. And remove the bias that cuts people down in organisations every single day. Pedro, my guest of a 40-year tenured career in multiple multilingual roles, running multilingual teams, managing at different levels in organisations, experiencing his own stigma, bias, 
shame, embarrassment. Experiencing the total opposite. Support, understanding, acknowledgement. Shares today some of his experiences throughout the years working in international companies. He shares some fantastic tips for HR managers that in this day and age, they could probably take on board, especially given the AI tools that we have and the global connection and possibility when it comes to interviewing. He shares a bit of hit back on monolingual speakers, tips and tricks that they can use to become more aware, conscious leaders. Some stories, as I said, about US leaders leading in the north of Europe and how disastrous that can turn out to be. And closes with a couple of comments related to women and men in the workplace that we don't go deeply into today, but we will come back on in the future. It was my great, great honour and pleasure to host Pedro Lozano. Enjoy the conversation. In the topic of languages, everyone must be humble, independently, if they are a native speaker or not. Those words, you may not remember writing to me. <laughs> and listeners, my, my guest this week is a wonderful man named Pedro Lozano, whom I met through LinkedIn about a year and a half ago now, I think, who commented with those words on one of my LinkedIn posts <laughs> on an article I wrote about not being a native speaker. What do you mean when, when you say that everyone must be humble independently, whether they are a native speaker or not? Well, I think that in some cases we forget, uh, well, how the others could feel when only we are, we are talking. And uh, I, I, I suffered, I think that's probably the right word, when the, uh, my, my colleagues in, uh, in executive teams didn't realize, not consciously, but didn't realize that I could be having issues or having problems on understanding them or following what they meant to say. And that uh, was the reason why I, I wrote these words, because I don't think that uh, these uh, peers uh, were uh, conscious about uh, uh, that topic. And in some cases, I think that uh, being humble means that we need to put in the other uh, person's food to try to understand how they feel and that not everyone could, uh, well, uh, can understand everything in the same way we uh, uh, we do, uh, and that's uh, that's something that uh, will uh, will help me a lot when participating in these international teams uh, uh, and trying to show the others well uh, our well, uh, the situation uh, mm -hmm. for them to can see easily uh, if they have not realized that. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well. I appreciate you being here today, and I didn't say it, but welcome to the show, or bienvenido uh, al, al podcast, can I say it like that? Al podcast, yeah. Al podcast, it's, okay. It's so, a real yeah. pleasure being here with you, Christine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And like I said, just before we hit record there, 
I'm very grateful to you for bringing your experience. Uh, I, as far as I understand it, you have over 40 years experience in international companies, right up to executive level companies like Citel, Warner Brothers, uh, uh, Wagons Travel, and a couple of different companies like that. So you know firsthand the experiences that people whose first language is not English can have when being the only one in the room. Isn't yeah. that right? Okay. All right. Good. Exactly. And, and, and I want to uh, well share with you uh, probably my best experience uh, as part of an executive team. And uh, uh, this happened with one of my bosses, uh, probably the best boss I had ever. And uh, uh, that was uh, Berkintana in, in Seidel. Uh, that was uh, uh, at the moment when at executive uh, team meetings, uh, he, in some cases, interrupted me to try to clarify what I, I wanted to say because he's Cuban-American, so he speaks fluently both Spanish and English. And, uh, well, I remember in some cases, Bert uh, saying the other members of the team, you know, what Pedro meant to say is this, because in some cases you think you are saying something, what the others understood was something completely different to what you want to say. And this happened in both ways, is uh, from native speakers in one way and from not native speakers in the other. And uh, well, I really appreciated uh, the help and support uh, that I had uh, uh, from him because, well, helped me a lot to approach the others in a completely different way. Wow. So he, he made it safe for you to check that people understood maybe and also yeah. created a, the conditions where other people would actually check in with you. Exactly. No, it was wow. both, both things. And that when he, it was clear that, A, I have not understood properly something or the whole team have not understood properly what I wanted to say. Well, he was in the middle and uh, obviously being the, the top executive at the at the uh, room well made uh, him uh, 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 be trustable and uh, everyone respected uh, what uh, uh, he said so uh, was was fantastic for me and helped me a lot because you know the frustration that means that a you are not following properly the discussion or or b uh, you are not able to transmit properly your your thoughts well it's uh, 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 it's really hard for a uh, in, in that moment for me, definitely. Mm. And when we think then of the, the that very basic standard model of communication, where you talk there about the sender and the receiver, the message being transmitted on either side, we have this noise in the middle. Yeah. The noise being one person not understanding or one person not transmitting. What do you think the dangers are of not creating the conditions to clarify in those kinds of situations? Well, I think that, that uh, the most important one is the frustration and probably on both parties. Because, uh, well, when you are not comfortable in the way of you are communicating with the others, automatically, well, this is something that uh, affects uh, uh, everything. The decisions uh, you could make and, uh, and everything around. I, I, I think that I shared with you at some point uh, on these LinkedIn uh, interactions, uh, well, the the situation of uh, being in a job interview, being a native speakers or non-native speakers, 
And a message that I received uh, from one headhunter, that was before I joined Warner Brothers, that uh, told me, hey, Pedro, you know, you are much, much more powerful in Spanish than in English. I said, well, it's normal. Na Spanish is my, my native language. Uh, and he said, well, it's not only that. It's the way you interact in one language and in the other that uh, makes you strong. Uh, and uh, well, I think that this is really, really important to take into consideration when you are hiring someone. He's trying to exclude the impact of the language skills when you are hiring that person, because if not, you will always hire the, the native English speaker because he's the one that is well more convincing, is using the right words, is telling you exactly what you want to hear, uh, but uh, that's not exactly in some cases what uh, you are, are, are trying to find. And uh, well, it's something that I, I, I realize uh, mostly in the 20 years I spent in Cytel, that is a, the majority of the top executives or the top jobs in the organization were uh, from uh, English native speakers. And that's not fair, I mm. say. Mm. Okay, so there's lots to, to, for us to unpack there, we might say. You make me think of a lady I recently interviewed for an episode, whose episode will be out before yours. So anybody who's listening to Pedro's episode, when it does come out, you can go back and look for the episode with Adriana. She did a TEDx talk on seeing beyond an accent. And that's what I hear when you say that about the interviews. Can you see beyond the accent or the, the language or the language skills to the person and their skills, their technical skills or their ability, maybe not their power? Do I understand you correctly before I ask my next yeah, question? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's completely uh, true, exactly what you say. Right. So how does an organization do that? Uh, well, it's not easy. Well, first of all, you need to have those people that, uh, uh, let's say, suffer uh, that uh, those situations trying to implement uh, processes and procedures that can help you uh, not to have the same issues uh, when you are the responsible of making decisions. You know that I was responsible of the Holy Mia region and, uh, well, on the 16 or 17 different countries, that I uh, I was handling, only one, the UK, was native English-speaking leader there. All the others, although all of them spoke much better English than me on Eastern Europe, on the Nordic countries, on Germany, uh, I, I, I think that I tried to understand or to put everyone at the same level, independently of the language, uh, exactly. And uh, the most important that was not only the language, but trying to understand their culture. Mm. It's true that uh, in some cases uh, you are, or you may impact negatively to that other culture in the way you interact with them. I think that I put an example at some point that was uh, talking about Filipinos people. Uh, Filipinos are, I won't say shy, but are, well, are very, very humble, very, very, uh, 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 very gentlemen or, 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 or great people are there. So if you speak, for example, at the loud voice that I'm speaking right now, 
they could feel that you are shouting to them. And it's your normal way to speak. But for them, you are annoyed and you are shouting to them. So you need to really understand how people feel when receiving your message uh, before, uh, well, starting the, the conversation. If you want to have a fluent conversation at the same level uh, with, uh, with them. And this happens with every single person. If you are talking about Latin people or you are talking about the Northern Europe uh, people, each of them have a different way of seeing things. And uh, well, you need uh, to try to adapt to their, their way of seeing things. Uh, and that helps a lot. Uh, and it's more than the language you speak, it's the way you interact as a leader with the people uh, that uh, must work for you. And that's uh, that's something that I always try to tell people. It's, uh, it's not only what you say, it's what they, they heard or what they listen. And, uh, yeah. and because I, 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 I have so many uh, uh, times misunderstood, the majority of the times probably was my fault. But uh, at the end, the, the effect was a people was misunderstanding me and that's something that, uh, well, uh, you need to take into consideration. I think there's a couple of things you mentioned there. Uh, I, I would like us to go back definitely to that, what you said about executive teams, maybe in a few minutes and about that lack of diversity on those teams, because it's a very important topic, particularly now as the world is trying to become more diverse and inclusive. And I hold my fingers up because those words have a lot of emotion behind them but we'll come back to that in, in a moment you mentioned being able to adapt your style of communication across different people in different nation from different nationalities because you could see that each has a different perspective we all see the world through our own lens of experience so if you were advising a hr officer or HR team on how to create interviews like this or how to better hold interviews to be more fair and inclusive. How would you help them to be able to do that? Well, my first recommendation would be try to have at least in one part of the process, a recruiter that speaks the same uh, native language than the uh, person that uh, is suspected to be hired uh, because that could help a lot on trying to see the two aspects that uh, that person could have in the in the organization uh, excluding as we said before the language effect because uh, we do not behave in the same way when you are speaking in uh, your native language than in the other you are more i would say uh, threatened to make mistakes uh, or to uh, not to be understood. So automatically, this means that uh, perhaps you are reducing your message using uh, 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 few words instead of, well, uh, the, the right number of words in order to transmit your message. So from an HR, pers HR perspective, I will always recommend uh, to do the hiring in the same language than the uh, uh, than the uh, uh, well the, the the person that is expected to be hired uh, speaks. 
Obviously, if English is needed uh, to be part of the job, well, we need uh, to have the right level on that language in order to, uh, but that cannot impact uh, definitely on the, on the process. And you need to try to put all your candidates at the same level, excluding the language impact. And I know it's not easy, uh, but uh, it's something that uh, at least you, you must try. Yeah, you say a couple of very interesting things there. The recognition that it's not easy and you hear these HR officers in your head now saying, I can't do that. That costs too much money. It's too much time and all these excuses or challenges that come in. But the reality is that for many jobs that are interviewed for, the language level, when we talk about, say, the CEFR levels, the European levels, is not necessarily a huge aspect of the job, particularly if it's a technical role, as long as the coding can be done or messages can be sent to confirm particular jobs have been completed. Do you think companies use language and language proficiency as a tool, let me get my question right. <laughs> That's where the pause is coming from. As a, as a tool to exclude people with what they might call a valid reason for excluding them. So, so would I clarify or is it? Yeah, I, I, asked think it clearly? I think that I understood the yeah, okay. uh, I probably would say yes, but probably not consciously. Right. At the at the end, when you're speaking with uh, one candidate, uh, well, you try to understand if you are comfortable having a conversation or you are struggling in some aspects of the conversation. If you are not capable to understand properly what that person is telling you, automatically it's like a barrier has been uh, uh, built uh, in the middle of uh, both people and your reaction, I would say it's a human reaction, is a little bit more negative than the one that is showing you, well, uh, everything very, I would say, clean and, uh, and easy uh, because it's uh, speaking uh, uh, at the level you, you, you expect. And that's something that is uh, really difficult to try to transmit uh, to the interviewer uh, when uh, he had not been on the other side of the table. You know, something that I realized in, the, in all my, my, my career, is that unfortunately the majority of the English native native speakers, and I would say mainly UK and US people, uh, it, English is their first and only language. So as they have never experienced a situation on the other side, because when traveling, everyone tries to speak English, even if you are far away from home. But it's not the case in the other situation. So uh Every time that you find an executive that speaks more than one language, more than English, automatically everything changes mm -hmm. because they understand better how you feel yeah. with the other person. Yeah, and this really brings us into part of the message that I try to transmit, and that not that I'm transmitting. I'm not going to say try. I'm transmitting <laughs> with the article on not calling me a native speaker with the episode of the podcast about being a native speaker or not, there are 400 million approximately 
English speakers as first language English speakers in the world. There are 1.3 billion people, approximately, that we, mm-hmm. we know of who speak English as a second or additional language. We, and I say we being a person who comes from an English speaking background, but who also has the Irish language as an understanding, are not in the majority. And yet there is this imperialistic view that the English speaker is the king or queen and is the better communicator or needs to be adapted to. So what's, what message would you give to those English speakers who don't understand, who have never tried to learn another language or put themselves in the shoes of somebody who has had to learn a language or may have felt like this? What's your message to them? Well, this is something that I already did uh, during my, my professional career. Right. That was, A, telling them uh, some type of tips that are, are, are very fast to explain. Try to speak slowly not as fast as you normally will speak when being with peers or friends or at home, uh, because, hey, we can uh, struggle on understanding two, three critical words in the sentence that can make change completely the the, the message you are understanding in comparison with what. So putting a little bit less of a speed on the conversation can help a lot to the uh, uh, to the other person. Second, and probably most, more important even than the first one, try to avoid complex words, slang, uh, fra- difficult phrasal verbs, or things that, well, probably won't be understood by the other person. Because, hey, you are not, uh, well, learning 100% of the words in one second language, perhaps, 50 or 60%, and you need to try to concentrate everything around that 60% because on the remaining 40%, you will be in trouble. And I remember one, one meeting in Saitel uh, uh, with the, 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 the whole executive team that they were using, uh, uh, well, a, a sentence or a phrasal verb uh, that I will never forget, that is strip it up, uh, that I even don't know what that meant. Even I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly. Can I strip it up, was it? Could be. I don't know. Neither do I. I remember (laughs) everyone laughing about that uh, for 15 minutes, uh, doing jokes uh, with uh, uh, that specific word or words. And I was, well, obviously not willing to ask because everyone uh, was... (laughs) Laughing on that, hey, <laughs> I need some help on that because, uh, well, I really don't know what you're what you're saying. Uh, so, if those people uh, can try to avoid using those complex uh, words or or, or or specific acronyms or or slang, would help a lot. Uh, or the others to try to, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, be uh, more comfortable. Because the other thing that uh, that's probably the last uh, uh, I would say on on, on the tips uh, to the uh, to the other members of the team, uh, and that's they do not realize that you are working heavily every single moment that you are speaking in a foreign language. It doesn't matter if you are having dinner or playing uh, uh, cards or other things because 
you must be so concentrated in what they are saying that you are not resting and you are not relaxing. That's the reason that uh, in uh, uh, probably too many occasions, I had to leave early the meetings, even if we, we were at uh, the free time, uh, because I was so tired that I needed to go at the hotel, do not speak with anyone for a, a, a certain number of hours, being ready, ensuring that you were ready for the next 10, 12 hours day, speaking and listening only in English. And that's all the thing that unfortunately they will never understand because, well, it's so easy saying, no, you are only talking. <laughs> yeah, but that's not, that's not that. Yeah, tell you what, here's a piece of paper in Spanish. Can you read that for me, please, 20 times right now? And then they might start to understand <laughs> <laughs> that feeling. So uh, tips, be aware of the language that you're using and try to reduce the number of acronyms, abbreviations, that kind of complex language. And recognize that the other person is constantly working to pay attention, to follow, even when it's maybe free time or what seemingly is a breakfast or a coffee or or a dinner occasion. So can I put to you then, I recognize when I started my teaching career in English that I, I didn't know what a phrasal verb was. I studied, of course, as a child and I knew that the language. But when I began teaching, one of the first times somebody asked me about this phrasal verb and a particle in a phrasal verb, I said, OK, I need to research this better and learn about it more. So. I did. And now my grammatical knowledge is very strong because of the amount of time I spent learning and honing my craft as a teacher, particularly for advanced language. But as an executive who's never done it, yeah. they often don't know that they have used a, or what a phrasal verb is, never mind that they've exactly. used one. And I often will say, or part of my message is, that's one, an excuse. If you say to me, I don't know what a phrasal verb is, that's fine. You don't have to know what a phrasal verb is. But you know when somebody sitting in front of you doesn't understand what you just said. So what do they do then? If we can fight back the excuse that they don't know when they're using language that isn't understood, what's the argument back to them? Well, I, I, I think, and, and, and sorry for not answering immediately to what uh, you're saying, but uh, if there is something that pandemic helped a lot was the use of tools like Zoom and the video conference. Because mm. when you are looking at the other person, you immediately, or nearly 90% of the occasions, uh, see if that person have understood what uh, you said or not. On the phone, the, the most uh common thing could be uh, a longest silence uh, but that's the only uh thing that you can well uh, uh, use to uh, understand and you cannot always ask him well have you understood because that can put uh, the other person in a uh, in a difficult uh, uh situation but when you are seeing looking at the face of uh, the other person well it's clear and normally we are transparent uh, and, and you can see when uh, someone is uh, 
is telling a joke and uh, you're laughing, but it's clear that you have not understood mm. is something that you can see on the face yeah. uh, uh, of that uh, that person. So uh, I always recommend uh, the members on my team, even before the pandemic, to use on the one-on-ones and on the on the team meetings, the video, because uh, that helped a lot. Uh, obviously, first, to be sure that they were focusing 100% on the on the conversation and they were yeah. not multitasking. But the second and most important thing, to guarantee that the other person was clearly understanding the, the message. And I think that probably at some point, this is uh, 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 probably answering exactly what you said is, uh, well, uh, what are the type of things that you can do to help the other person to uh, be understood? And I think that using video or being face-to-face with uh, someone is helping a lot. Definitely, I can tell you, when you're having a one-on-one, uh, probably you're understanding 99% of what the other person is saying. When you're in a group meeting with people with different accents, with different uh, tons of boys and uh, probably people speaking at the same time is when you are starting uh, being lost. Uh, so uh, a recommendation, again, for those uh, working on executive teams is try to respect all the others and not to speak at the same time because the non-native speakers will lose everything. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's uh, something that uh, probably won't help to the understanding of the problem or the situation you are trying to analyze and the decision you are trying to make. Here, are you paying attention? Did you understand what I just said? Oh, that was a bit of a rude interruption there, listeners, wasn't it? Sorry about that. Sort of. I'm just trying to demonstrate the impact of an interruption like that on the brain and how it can cut right to the core pretty quickly even though it wasn't a very threatening moment. But I'm interrupting for a reason. I just want to remind you that if you enjoy my content, if you are somebody who wants to develop yourself or your teams, your pronunciation, your diction, your clarity, your presentation skills, I'm a dab hand at presentations, I must say I do love them. Your cross-cultural communication skills, understand your cultural profile, or any of those things combined, whether you don't have a lot of time and want to do it by yourself, or you want to dedicate a little bit more focused time to doing it, I have the options for you. Go into the show notes, check connectedcommunication.club, or go onto my main website. Get in touch with me, or simply just get yourself into the platform. Start training today. And let's get you into that place where you're no longer holding back. Instead, you're pushing forwards, standing strong, standing up, smiling, even though you've got daggers in your eyes because somebody's tried to embarrass you, managing your emotions and saying, no, it's okay. Let's move on. I would add in there as well that it's not necessarily the second language speaker who can't follow everything. So, for instance, if I have really realized in the past year or so, I'm doing quite a bit of work with people in the UK and in groups with people from the UK. 
if I don't speak quite clearly and if I get very animated and go very Irish, even with people from the UK, they can't follow me because my accent in Ireland, in Irish, or my, my accent in English from Ireland isn't common for them. Yeah. And I use certain sounds and certain phrases that they don't recognize. So I see the face just a little change sometimes. And I know, oh, I'm speaking too quickly or something I said wasn't understood. So I think to a lesser extent, yes, but to an extent, it, it's the same for everybody in the room. Not everyone is going to be able to follow high energy people speaking across each other multiple accents, multiple tones of voice. So as you say, the recommendation being whether it's one language or five languages in the room, have a respectful form of communication where people listen, wait. Maybe there needs to be interruption because that's the culture. But if there's interruption, the interruption happens and then there's a response. Would that be fair to say? And, and that's exactly and that's exactly what happened uh, to the Spanish-speaking community because mm -hmm. Latin America countries, the majority of them speaks uh, uh, Spanish, but it's a different type of Spanish, uh, complete different words in some cases. And I always say, well, uh, even if it's the same language, in some cases we do not understand each other. So yeah. again, we must make an effort to try to understand the different. Uh, uh, words or, 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 or topics that uh, can uh, help you, uh, uh, well, to be better communicator with them. So I, I, I fully understand you because we had the same situation in a completely different language. Sure. And I could say that I recognize that both from my year in China. When I lived in China, I lived in Beijing, but I traveled to 13, I think, of the 29, 28, 29 provinces. And I began to hear the difference between the accent in Beijing versus Chengdu versus Shanghai, just the little idiosyncrasies between how they spoke. But in Spain, it's the same. Last year, I walked the Camino de Santiago and the different Spanish that I encountered, and I know there was Galician and, and, and the Basque as well on, on the way over, but even and Catalan from, from people from Barcelona. But even in the general Spanish spoken, there was a huge difference yeah. in the pronunciation, the clarity of speakers. And now I live in Andalusia, where you say, como ta. <laughs> even more difficult. <laughs> that and that, if I can master Andalusian Spanish, I will definitely buy myself a gift because... The pronunciation there is so difficult, but this is where I think, and I'll ask you what, what you think about it, understanding comes in and trying to listen differently. So for me, if I'm speaking to somebody with a very strong accent, regardless of where they're from, I'm, I have just as much a responsibility to try to hear and understand the sounds that they're shaping as they have to try to speak clearly to help me understand. What do you think about that? Well, that's uh, that's basic. And the problem is that only when you have enough 
confidence or you are comfortable enough with the other person when this type of conversation takes place. Obviously, during an interview or during a, a work uh, a meeting, well, you are not expecting to ask a client, can you speak slowly and uh, speak clearly to me because I'm not capable to understand you? Well, probably this is not so common. It could happen at right. some point, but it's not uh, so common than when, with a peer. I remember uh, with uh, some peers in Saitel uh, working in Scotland that I had to ask them in some cases, well, repeat uh, three or four times the same sentence because in some cases I couldn't understand a single word. Uh, and I said, well, sorry, please, I need to apologize, but I have not understand anything <laughs> on what you say. But obviously you are doing that with those people that, well, are your peers or are, are, are colleagues. But uh, uh, imagine how this could happen in a, in a completely different environment. Well, this is not happening. It's not. And, and so let's think then about the future of business, because in the past, so you've, you've had a 40 year career, which actually is the length of my lifetime. I was 40 this year. So you've seen the development since I was born up to now in language and in global communication and how much more globalized the world has become with, as you said, their video, the internet and, and because of COVID. Why can't meetings start to change now with the total awareness that when I ask this question, it depends on the culture, it depends on the context and the relationship I know. But why can't we start to get to a place where it's safe and okay to say to somebody in a meeting, can we say that differently? Can we look at some more examples of that? I'm really not following. That to, to help people to build the confidence to say to a boss, I don't understand. Yeah, but you know, that would be ideal. I'm but, being uh, too optimistic. The, <laughs> or idealistic. Way, in the same way that I said that during a job interview, uh, the message I received, hey, you are not showing so strong in English than in Spanish. I think that the perception of being, I would say, weaker if you are asking that uh, specific uh, request, yeah. it's putting you in a, different, in a different position. Imagine that you are meeting a client and uh, uh, presenting your offer, and you are competing with other three, four, five international offers. You can imagine that you are perceived as the guy that didn't follow us on the conversation is not good for your company. So, uh, I don't know if the perception could be that or, hey, you see, that's a really honest person that prefer to interrupt us asking for clarification than nodding, even if he's not understanding anything. I don't know. Yeah, and, and this people is, could perceive that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's why I bring this conversation forwards, because for certainly a number of years or maybe traditionally, the view has been an immediate, that person's not competent, they don't understand, I'm not giving them my business. But the more globalized these meetings become, when now maybe in the future, 
there might be a minority first language English speaker in the room and the majority is a multilingual group. Can it become an, a more normal thing for saying I don't know to be a strength rather than a weakness? Yeah, but I think that we are not at this moment at that level. Okay. Still, I think, as I said at the beginning, ideally, we need to be uh, uh, focused on that and directing, on going into that direction. Uh, but I think that uh, we are still are not there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back then into the, the boardroom and the executive boardroom. You mentioning earlier that still, when you look at the top of the majority of organizations, they're not maybe ethnically, linguistically, and culturally diverse. It's still the white shirt, white man, dare I say it, <laughs> whose first language is English, who rules the room. You know, that's why, that's why I loved the team I had in Saitel, uh -huh. because uh, uh, diversification was there at all levels. It's not, only, it's not only the weight of uh, men versus women, it was people from different religions. I remember having Muslim people there, uh, people that were not, uh, uh, well, we have one guy, uh, one gay, uh, uh, another uh, lady that was lesbian. All these, I would say 25 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, probably was materially impossible. And the only English native speakers were probably one third of the of the team. All the others, English was the second language. So I think that this is the type of thing that we can teach to uh, other organizations and, and try to to go into that direction. Uh, obviously, not a, a, as a, a, a something that must be uh, uh, done for sure. Is okay. Let's try. And if you can go there, because you know uh, the richness of the conversations that we had as a team was amazing. And it's not only the difference uh, based on cultures, because as I said at the beginning, uh, people from 17 different countries imagine that uh, the conversations were really rich, is that diversification that we had, uh, that diversity, I would say, uh, but uh, that we had uh, in the in the team that uh, will help a lot uh, to the uh, well to the results at the end. So you noticed the impact of diverse thinking on the performance of the organization. Is that do I understand you correctly? Yeah. 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 Right. And in what kind of performance? When you look at this in terms of a research perspective, it's part of the reason a lot of companies don't try to do this or can't see the value in investing in learning how to do this because there's no immediate or very clear impact on bottom line results. But from a look at your LinkedIn, the part of the work that you do is, is help companies strategically to significantly increase their bottom line results. So what did you notice was the impact? Well, probably uh, uh, they don't see the value until they don't... Uh experience that right. because it's not easy to explain well how much your bottom line will be increased by having a team like that well i can only talk about uh, 
uh, the results that we as a team delivered during the 10 years that I was leading that, that team that were exponential. How part of that was due to the diversity of the team? I cannot quantify that, but definitely help for sure. In the same way that I remember when I was responsible of the South and EMEA region, and we had a US leader uh, leading the North part of EMEA, and precisely due to the different culture, the results of the South that historically were much lower than the North uh, were much higher. And was because of that uh, misunderstanding on the culture on how to manage that team. And so can, can I just uh, to check there? So the, the guy running the South was from the US? Yeah, but and the guy was that... running the northern part of Europe. Ah, okay. And was, and was leading that, let's say, in the US way. Uh-huh. Do you know my recommendation to that boss that uh, uh, that was the one that uh, proposed me to take uh, the expanded role? I said, well, you know, if you want a recommendation, put an European. I don't care about the country, but an European to run Europe. Because a US or another continent person trying to lead uh, Europeans uh, would be much more difficult for the organization. Okay. Okay. So that's a very important comment you make for global firms. And it it reflects again with somebody else that I interviewed whose interview will have been published before yours comes out also. who talked about imposing Western culture on the East. But what I, I hear you talk about here is imposing for instance, American culture on Europe or imposing European culture on America. Let's be fair and bring it both ways. So what if a company then is going into the APAC region, into Asia Pacific, trying to bring someone in from Europe to Asia Pacific or or America to Asia Pacific and placing those Western ideals on the, the company there? What's your recommendation? Well, I would say that always try to find uh, the right local leader to run the, those regions. I think that Saitel only started to succeed uh, in uh, uh, the, the APAC region when they put, uh, uh, in this case, one of the local leaders, an Indian guy, uh, to run that, uh, that region because they really understood, uh, he really understood perfectly, uh, A, the needs, of the UK and US clients and the culture that they was bringing, but, well, had the, to know how to manage and how to lead the APAC employees. Uh, and that's uh, something that not every single company is doing because they say, hey, the clients are uh, Occidental or from Western uh, part of the world. I need to put a leader there to really understand the clients. You don't need that to be on the same nationality of the clients to understand their language or their needs. Uh, And in the same way, I said that uh, I would never be a good leader for a Filipino community because they could feel that I was always shouting to them and they would never respect me. Uh, uh, I think that we need uh, to give the opportunity to the local uh, uh, teams to be 
the the leaders of that country or on that uh, uh, part of the world. Okay. Do you think the skills can be learned if a, an organization can't find the leader they want in region? Can they be taught the, the, the skills and the understanding to somebody from outside? I, I think that uh, uh, that uh, that's something that is doable. Hmm. Perhaps it's needed like a landing of uh, someone from the head office, going there, trying to understand what are the, the needs of that uh, team in order to move that to the next uh, level. But I think that uh, in the same way you can... Uh, teach uh, skills and uh, and uh, um, well give knowledge of uh, of tools and or things. Uh, these type of uh, things can be done, and uh, well you need to be there like shadowing them, helping them to uh, 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 to do the what uh, we expect from them, and then le- leave uh, them well alone to continue doing that and uh, being there to support them, but on, on the second line. I, you know one thing that uh, I did uh, with uh, this uh, European EMEA team was give the opportunity to people that were at second or a third level in the in the countries, uh, well, give them the opportunity to lead that uh, site or that country. And the most common uh, response coming from them, hey, you feel? I'm not ready. I feel I'm not ready to take that responsibility. And I said, well, that's why I'm here. Here uh, I'm here is to help you on those situations that you could, well, struggle. So the only thing that you need to do is in our weekly one-on-ones telling me where you are struggling, and I would try to help you on that. And I remember one lady in the UK that rejected my proposal of being promoted, and then we had a uh, uh, to take someone from outside. That person stayed probably not more than six months in the organization, didn't fit with the team. And, uh, you know, the answer of that lady uh, after the six months, hey, you know, Pedro, uh, now I I realize that I can do the job because I can do it much better uh-huh. than this person uh-huh. that you brought from wow. outside. And, and, and that's something that, uh, well, uh, uh, at the end, well, is, is, is making you really proud of uh, identifying talent in the organization and bringing them the opportunity. Well, yeah. this morning I read on LinkedIn that one person that I hired as the managing director in Portugal, when Portugal in Saitel only had 200 employees, was appointed like one of the top 50 most influential women in Portugal. Uh, now, I think that uh, she has uh, more than 4,000 people in Portugal, and she has responsibility on all the multilingual community in uh, inside El. So imagine how proud you can be by identifying that talent, putting in one, in one point, uh, in one place, and support her growing in the, in the organization. This is unbelievable, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Well, congratulations to that. And and thank you, may I say, on behalf of women for <laughs> recognising also talent in women, because that's often overlooked. So it's a great thing to know that there are supporters out there who promote well, them on. 
She sounds are, like somebody I'd love to meet. You are smarter <laughs> and more intelligent than the men. The <laughs> question is that in the, in some cases, uh, well, uh, there there is a moment in the in the life of women that uh, unfortunately they must choose between professional and personal, and this is not fair. Oh, we only have seven minutes left. Do we go down that road now? Because that's a whole <laughs> conversation to have, which is it's one I would love to have with you. I, I agree. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll park that one if that's okay. And when I say park it, we'll leave that one for the next for the time. Next one. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm, I will make a note. The personal versus professional. Yeah, it's it's a big conversation, that one. Something I just did there, I said, we'll park it. And then I clarified without asking to say, we'll leave it. My clarification wasn't for you. It was for people who might be listening who don't understand what park it means. And I would do that fairly often, say, I might recognize in my own head, oh, I've used an idiom or I've said something that might not be clear. And I just say a different meaning. And then I continue talking. What do you think of that as a, a technique? <laughs> well, no, that's fantastic. Uh, if I understood it, it's because in plenty of meetings, we had the parking lot in a, <laughs> in a place that you put all these uh, things and, or topics that uh, you cannot discuss at that moment. So when you said park that, it, uh, automatically I... I saw the the, the parking lot the parking uh, lot, thing. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, you know, this thing that for you is so uh, easy to identify, uh, unfortunately, is not so common in every single native speaker, and you are not conscious. That's why uh, the conscious thing is, uh, I think that I've repeated uh, five or ten different times during the conversation, is because if you are not conscious of a need or, or something, you will never change that. If you are not conscious that you need to improve your English because you feel that your English is quite good enough, you will never improve that uh, the, the language skills and so on. So you need to be conscious of something if you want to improve and if you want to change. So perhaps the, the tip is trying to make conscious uh, those people that they still uh, are not. Absolutely. A big amen to that. It is the first aspect of the work that I do. Awareness, self-awareness first, and mm -hmm. then the rest of the awareness comes after it. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful way to bring us towards a close. There's two things I didn't ask you. One is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, which we'll get to in a moment. The second is just if I might explore with you your opinion on my belief or thinking that the word or the phrase native English speaker is loaded with bias and that we need to stop using it. That's my my thinking. That when yeah, somebody yeah, says I native think, English I speaker. I think that uh, bias is, uh, 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 well, probably one of the things that uh, is impacting the more the, the 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 way that you are communicating in some cases you have something in your mind and it's very difficult to make you change your mind because you have that in your mind and automatically you go into that direction even if it's not the right one mm -hmm. so uh that's uh that's something that uh, well definitely we need to fight 
uh, trying to change that. Yeah, I think that that's the case with this. I'm a native English speaker. I'm better. But just because you speak English as a first language doesn't make you a better communicator. There is yeah. a difference. I think you have that's not very made clear. that decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were born on that environment. So Absolutely. That, that was much easier for you. Yeah, you got that privilege. That was a gift, in fact. And it's one that you get to share with others and realize is a gift. Yeah, for sure. I think the last question is the podcast is called Connected Communication. What does connected communication mean to you? Well, I think that connected is when you are, well, having an interaction and that you understand each other. Because if not, probably there is a word in English that is, well, there is a disconnection. And when there is a disconnection, everything fails. So when uh, you are talking about something that's connected, means that works. Uh, means that, uh, well, it's really going into the direction that you expect and it's easy. So uh, I think that you succeeded on putting the, the name of the topic because uh, I think that's, uh, uh, well, what, what, what must happen. Thank you so much. Like I have to give credit to a, a lady in a group on Facebook that I posted a poll about asking for suggestions and ideas and opinions about the title I was going to choose. And none of the titles I put up were selected. And one woman said, what about connected communication? So I can't claim it myself. Congratulations to that lady. <laughs> yes, congratulations to that lady is right. Thank you so much, Pedro. I really appreciate you you coming on and sharing your experience, your incredible wisdom vulnerability and openness to how executive teams and organizations from the interview up can become more open, can become more inclusive and more diverse in terms of a linguistic pers perspective and outlook. I really do appreciate you being here. No, it's been a real pleasure being here and spending this time that went really fast. I cannot believe that uh, now it's one hour that we've started. Yeah, and we've so already long. got the topic for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so if if people want to find you, if they're interested in learning more about you, about the work that you do, are well, you still LinkedIn, available I'm, for work? Or Yeah, well, I'm available for everything that can help people to uh, do their jobs easier and better. The good thing of being... Uh, dedicated only to taking care of my parents and my grandchildren is that I have enough time uh, to uh, uh, help and support each other. So uh, fully available for anyone that, uh, well, could feel that my experience can help. That's really fantastic. Uh, what comes into my head there as well is I'm going to say a thank you to our mutual friend, Shelley Pershon. I think it's the pronunciation of her surname because it was Shelley that introduced us. I haven't had her on the podcast yet, but uh, I, I'm really honoured to know you and to have had you on the podcast now, to have done the live with you and have shared experience and, and information with you about this very, very important topic. Muchísimas gracias. And remember, when you are coming to Madrid, uh, you need to have a beer together. Uh, yeah. Definitely. And Madrid is a city I haven't visited yet. So it's hopefully in the next year. I go back to Spain in two weeks. 
and I'm there then, fingers crossed, for a long time. Looking forward for that. Likewise, likewise. How can I say it? Uh, estoy emocionada de encontrarte. Can I say Good it like work. that? Yeah, does that work? <laughs> okay. Work perfectly. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. It's been Have a real day. pleasure. I appreciate it. Listeners, that was Pedro Lozano, as we said at the beginning. He has shared some incredible wisdom and experience of a 40-year career in all different positions, managing people from all over the world, finding the future leaders who are now our present leaders of today, women and men, and taught us that the language effect doesn't have to be a negative, that it is something that we can be aware of, that we can take steps to address and overcome and enjoy working with a multitude of of cultures, different backgrounds and different perspectives when we see the human behind the language. As always, if you have enjoyed the episode, please let me know. Follow the podcast, subscribe, rate it, review it, share it with your friends, especially those who you know will resonate with Pedro's message. Now, until next time, gaji on Ur Ella, I think I'm practicing my my Irish language. Ano kajian kid Ur Ella. Until next time, banakti agus buikas. <laughs>